G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast, uh, coming to you from two different locations has become our practice over recent months. Uh, I'm in the Connolly Studios, my co-host Mark Fine in the studios at Southern FM in Brighton, some lovely crisp late autumn morning air in Melbourne town as we record, so it's a bit of a a spring in the step and, of course, spring in the step too because the uh, resumption of the AFL season is now a few steps closer and we're actually talking about games again. So uh, the long wait, uh, inching closer to being over, as I say, a very big hello to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you, Fine? I'm well. I'm, my mood matches yours. I'm upbeat. Incredible weather, actually, this I love these crisp mornings sort of morphing into quite balmy afternoons and I don't know how long we'll be enjoying that for, but the weather is now matched with a far more optimistic outlook, not just with a resumption date for football, of course, but here in Victoria with a plan to reopen restaurants and pubs and obviously we need to still be very careful, but there seems to be... Uh, a way out. We're climbing the ladder back into daylight. Yep, it's been a, a steady-as-she-goes approach from, uh, well, I think all leaders, actually, and, you know, my political persuasion, but I have to say Scott Morrison, I think, has risen to the challenge and uh, various state premiers and Dan Andrews in Victoria ditto, uh, despite the commentary of certain um curmudgeons in in media circles and i'll i'll get to that later but uh i think the overall consensus is we've uh, all handled it pretty well and that's a, a major reason we're getting closer to normality again and i tell you when we do get back to full normality again finally the first thing i'm going to do is venture down to a certain location in albert park for a certain bite of a certain quality fast food what would i be talking about well, I'm certain you're talking about heading to 144 Bridport Street in Albert Park for Andrew's Hamburgers, the luxury bite. They really are the definitive, when I say old school burger, I don't want to detract from it in any way. They're the way a burger should be. Buns, they don't need to be uh, this concoction of modern. I've seen buns now that are bright red, bright blue, anything to gain the attention of the YouTube generation that, of course, are so beholding to TikToking and eating blue buns. No, this is a good old-fashioned burger. And I mean that, in a modern sense, as the best burger you can buy. Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. You heard him. It's the buns. It's the sumptuous meat patties. It's the fresh addition of lettuce, tomato, cheese, any ingredient you want within reason, you'll get it all at uh, the traditional and the best 
hamburger joint in town, Andrews Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And where can we get the finest of home renovations, Mark? We don't miss a beat when we talk about new builds and renovations from West Point Properties. Nick Spartel's the principal, and uh, you've got to give him credit, working right through this difficult period, but adding value to houses that, let's let's be honest, the property market's going to change and you need to maximise your property. If that's your plan, then Nick Spartels is your man. West Point Properties in the southeastern Melbourne suburbs. Indeed. And we are going to maximise the value of this podcast, Finey. A lot to get through today. Plenty of news, plenty of our regular segments, life hacks, vinyl on video, the rant off, you know the drill. I reckon we should waste no more time. On Footyology Newsfeed. All right. Uh, well, the major news, of course, and we'll get to that, is uh, concerning the resumption of the aborted 2020 AFL season. But um, serious matter to start with, Finey, and that was the news coming through on Sunday night about uh, former St Kilda star, now Geelong, recruit Jack Stephen and um, a fair degree of concern about his welfare. Of course, he's had some well-documented struggles with his mental health. And um, we don't know a lot about this story as we record this. So um, apologies for that. And, uh, you know, look, look, this this may be um, redundant by the time you listen to this, but it, it is fairly serious news. And that was that Jack Stephen presented to hospital, Cabrini Hospital, actually in Malvern, um, with a uh, not life-threatening but a, a serious stab wound on Saturday evening. And uh, there's some speculation, probably too much speculation, about uh, what might have uh, caused that. Um, police have attempted to interview him. That, as we record this, hasn't yet occurred. Um Stephen is living down at Lawn these days. He has a former partner and a child who live in town. Um, but that's the details are very sketchy. And Geelong Footy Club, I think rightfully, has um, shed no further light on it. They obviously want to be fully informed of what's going on. Um, what, what, what do you make of it all, Finey? Do you know any more detail than we do? No, I don't. Look, you know me, Rowan. I, I love covering football, but I'm, I've never been a star chaser. I, I don't look to have friendships within the playing ranks of footballers. I just have been fortunate enough to um, work with footballers and, and past and present over the duration. But actually, Jack is somebody that I did have a bit of a, a friendship with through connections in football. In fact, when he announced that he was heading to Geelong. I sent him an SMS and caught up with him at a local hotel for a beer and a farewell and he was in a really good place. I just, um, I'll bide my time and sort of contact him via SMS again. I just hope he's okay. You know, there's no, um, there's no threat, serious threat from the actual injury sustained, but obviously there are ongoing concerns about Jack's state of mental health and we know that through this difficult period of lockdown and COVID-19 that has been thrust upon us that um, the mental 
the strain on the mental health system and, and of course, on individuals has been marked. So I, I just hope that he's um, okay and comes through this, not in a football sense, but in a personal sense, triumphantly. Yeah, no, hear, hear. Echo this, those sentiments. And um, I think one good thing so far at least is that the reporting of it thus far has been fairly uh, cognizant of the fact that he has had this background of, of mental health issues. And I think the concern is, is genuine. And I think people um, probably treading carefully about how they talk about it and uh, I can't help but wonder if and hopefully this is the case that in light of the Dean Wadley story uh, last week that um, people have perhaps reassessed um, how we talk about these things so if we're sounding a little bit oblique about this um, make no apologies for that because it's just not our place to be presuming anything surrounding this we just hope he's okay and um, that he can get uh, the help both medical and uh, psychological, that he may need. And the club certainly uh, getting off on the right foot in that regard by uh, keeping their cards close to their chest. So like everyone, we'll just uh, keep an eye on things and fingers crossed for Jack and let's hope he and his family and, and friends are, are okay. I, I don't know. Um, what, I don't, I, just on that, I don't know what people's perception of Jack Stephen is. He is a gorgeous guy. He is such... A lovely, you know, he was a very good footballer and hopefully still will be a very good footballer. Four time BNF at St Kilda. I don't think I've ever met somebody more self effacing, less caught up in football and what he's achieved than Jack. He's just a, a, you know, when he's well and I hope that these days return quickly, he's just got this this magnetic smile he's a gorgeous guy so uh, you know let people know that we're talking about a lovely fellow here yeah no here here all right well uh in logistical terms obviously uh big news uh well around this time last week uh dan andrews uh talking about the gradual restriction of um these lockdown obligations and uh the AFL responding with announcements about uh how the season may look. So uh probably in, in all the talk actually, even beyond Gil McLaughlin's um public offerings on this, probably the most interesting information I gleaned over the last few days was a radio interview that uh, Travis Old from the AFL did and Travis is the man basically in charge of the fixturing um, and a couple of things of, of uh, significance he hinted strongly that there would be more Thursday nights now in the fixture um, and the main reason is um, and he explained it pretty well. It's that uh, normally, well, they are trying to get more Thursday nights into the fixture, but they've got to be very aware of um, the fact that it's the middle of the week. You know, they try to factor more of them in during school holidays, etc. But, you know, the most significant caveat on this whole season is the um, likelihood that the whole season will be played in front of no crowds. So um, that gives them, you know, the one positive of that, and I don't think there's any really, but the one thing you can say is it gives them more flexibility in terms of the scheduling. So they'll try and uh, spread that load of games a bit more evenly, I guess, and that's better for TV slots, I suppose, by 
potentially having more Thursday nights and potentially double headers, uh, more double headers or eight double headers. We, we haven't had any since one in 1986. Um, and uh, they would be, he said they wouldn't necessarily be back to back. So one game finishes and another one starts immediately, but they do have flexibility to have two games within you know, an hour or so of each other at the one venue. And obviously the logistics of that are far easier without huge crowds to get in and out from one game to the next. Um, and I, look, I guess the only other thing I could add to that uh, is there's been, well, we know the resumption date now is June the 11th and also still plenty of speculation about, uh, you know, what will the games be? kicking it off, which I've got to be honest, Fonny, I can't get overly excited about that one. I mean, we've got 144 games to get through and uh, whether one's first off the rank or third or fourth uh, doesn't worry me too much. And it seems like the betting is strongly on Richmond v Collingwood being scheduled or announced on June the 11th. And I saw some references to it as a blockbuster, which raises a question, if you've got a albeit big game between two big clubs and it's played in front of a crowd of zero, does that still qualify as a blockbuster? I, I must say I have my doubts. Yeah, it's first of all, it'll be interesting to see whether or not they, obviously in trying to regenerate interest in the competition, do front load the fixture with a lot of marquee games. Uh, the ones that obviously come to mind are Richmond Collingwood, Collingwood Essendon, uh, Hawthorne Geelong, the Derby, the Showdown. These sort of games have always garnered a lot of interest both within and outside the states they're being played. So we'll wait to see. Given that they're not using, they're not, there's not going to be crowds for the foreseeable future. Uh, I just wonder whether they can be more creative with the venues that they are playing the games at? Does it really have to be at the MCG and uh, Eddie at uh, Marvel Stadium, for example, in Victoria? Can other venues not be used? Um, yeah, no, well, possibly, but I, I still think you've still got enough people to get in there, i.e. players, officials, you know, support staff, etc. The venues still need to be TV friendly. In yep. fact, that becomes even more important given that that's 90% or 95% of us, the only means we have of watching. Um, and you'd want, you know, you'd want the facilities, dressing rooms and whatever to be of a reasonably professional standard. So, yeah, yeah I can see them use, I could see them using, you know, Icon Park perhaps. Um, but, you know, like I, I can't see it sort of becoming a, de facto pre-season series arrangement where we're playing various country venues. I mean, what's the point of that if people can't go anyway? So you want ease of access and I suspect you utilise the, the venues you already have. And, um, you know, look, they'll be trying pretty hard. I reckon that what Travis Old said, the point of more Thursday nights and more double headers, and this absolutely makes sense, you want to avoid simultaneous games so um you know in a way I, I mean i'm just thinking on the run here but you know you'd want to avoid that saturday situation where you've got two afternoon games and two evening games happening simultaneously you want to they need 
every post needs to be a winner. So you try and stagger the game. So it's possible to watch virtually every game at different times. And that's a trade often to do that. You need, um, you need to be using the primary venues and with double headers, you've got more options in using those venues. So I, I look, my, off the top of my head, I tend to think it's doubtful they'll use alternative venues. I think the venues they've got will will all work and they'll have more flexibility with how they use them. And Does that make sense? Absolutely. <laughs> flexibility is going to be the key because when they released the fixture initially, uh, Queensland's going to still have border, board, closed borders. So will WA most likely. And as that changes, so does the demand for, for example, Brisbane and Gold Coast to only play outside of that state, very onerous and and West Coast and Fremantle, very hard for those teams to succeed if they're never playing at home. So it really is a very close watch on border control, border closures, and it's going to be complicated. There's a suggestion this morning I heard from uh, Queensland that they may reopen their borders and create a bubble uh, with South Australia, Northern Territory and WA that allows them to travel within those states. But they have concerns about levels of community community outbreaks in Victoria. We've got, as we speak this morning, McDonald's closures and other businesses closing down. So certainly it hasn't been in any way stamped out in Victoria and New South Wales as well. So there might might be a very complex, uh, or, you know, very intricate dance as to where teams can play and travel, and that will determine future future um, scheduling of games. It's going to be a fine, very fine line to walk, isn't it? It is, and that gets back to your point right off the top of the show, which is whilst things appear to be getting better. We, we just can't afford to relax with this. And, and I think we've also got to be prepared for, you know, uh, well, I think we are prepared for a spike in cases with the onset of, uh, of winter and stuff. And, yes, we might be better prepared to cope with them. But that's, um, you know, look, the AFL have said, whereas at the start of a season, one positive COVID test would lead to the shutting down of a season, that's not necessarily going to be the case now. But... You know, you wouldn't want too many before shutting it down again became a possibility. I think the other important point, Fanny, is there's always a lot of cynicism about, um, well, from outside Victoria, about the non-Victorian teams and how difficult the task is for them. But there can be no question that, you know, the South Australian and West Australian teams having to go to the Gold Coast and establish a hub there that, you know, this is going to be a particularly difficult premiership for those clubs to win. And I don't blame them for being pissed off about that. Unfortunately, it can't be helped. But the bottom line is it will be significantly harder for those sides to win a flag, I think, than a Victorian side. Do you agree? My my fur coat. I, I just get a sense that we are forcing, we are thrusting a season upon ourselves, or the AFL is, to meet contractual obligations with broadcasters and they're doing that with you know for no uh, people shouldn't think it's sinister they're doing that to try to ensure the long-term survival of 18 clubs this is a necessary evil 
many of the things that we are about to go through. And I just don't like the way it's sort of being misconstrued by some fans as uh, the money-hungry AFL are forcing, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, to having a season no matter what the consequences and it's selfish and greedy. It's not. It's all about the long-term survival of all the clubs we love. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I mean, you and I would be among the first to accuse the league of that if they were sort of selling themselves out for purely for the cash. But in this case, the cash is literally, in some cases, about survival. And, um, I mean, when you're talking about a, a broadcasting deal that's worth, I think, $419 million per year, and even if we get the season we now look like having, that is going to be significantly reduced. So not to get any of that, I mean, that literally would be the difference between some clubs existing or not. So it is literally a matter of survival. And um, in a way, that's sort of, I feel uncomfortable with that too, that, you know, like ideally we just scrap this year and start again, but we can't, you know. But that's the bottom line. If we want to enjoy all the clubs we do and the competition we do down the track, we have to have some sort of competition this year, and uh, you know, is that the uh, the tail wagging the dog in terms of the broadcasters and the power they influence and exert? Well, um, in a way, yeah, it is. But I think we all sort of knew that was the case anyway. Look, the economy of football quite sensibly relied upon a season being played every year. Nobody envisaged that that was ever in jeopardy, and to point fingers at clubs or the AFL for not for being in a financial position that was insecure in the event of such a thing happening is, you know, after the fact, being very smart. But who honestly could have ever imagined that a full season was in severe jeopardy and a season would be played without crowds? No, nobody saw this coming, mate. No, we've speculated about a lot of uh, wild and wacky scenarios over the years, but no one has ever thought that something like this could happen. So uh, there you go. We're seeing a lot of things that we aren't used to in the world now, and this is just another in a lengthening list. I mean, we really, right, we really the, thought that if football was... You wait until I say that before you come in. <laughs> well, we thought that football... Most people, if you would have said there's not going to be a football season, they would have thought that Earth had been hit by a meteor. Really, I mean, yeah. you know... It, it, for many of us, especially historically minded that have seen football seasons completed during two world wars, the Spanish flu and other crises, could never imagine the trouble that we've been in this year or the jeopardy in which the game was placed. So let's just get out of it what we can. No, true. No, I agree with that. Okay. I think that's enough. Now, just do you have anything else you're going to say just as I throw to the next segment? I do, but I'll just hold my counsel and see whether you mention it in the next segment or whether I need to bring it up. I think you know what I'm talking about. You, uh, I you don't, gr- actually. Oh, so... you, you graced my screen last night, mate. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, okay, that's very self-indulgent, but I've got a self-indulgent one too. So uh, let's address that now and do some life hackery. Life hacks. Building a better world. All right. Uh, I did mention self-indulgence. I wouldn't say this is self-indulgence, but I I feel like I I need to sort of send a bit of thanks to people. So 
Um, as you're aware, Fanny, and other people may or may not be aware, um, I had an older brother, Steve, who uh, very sadly passed away uh, 25 years ago. And in fact, that sad anniversary was on Saturday, May the 16th, uh, 1995, we lost Steve. Um, he was my big brother and he was a bit of a hero to me. And uh, he was a very talented musician who taught himself to play guitar and played in a succession of rock bands, um, best known for his work with Paul Kelly, uh, Paul Kelly and the Colour Girls and Paul Kelly and the Messengers. And, um, you know, anniversaries of the passing of a loved one are, are usually pretty hard. And 25 years, it's, it's just hard to believe it's that long, to be honest. But anyway, I, I always mark the occasion with, uh, just a, a bit of a tribute on Twitter, which I did again, and I found a few nice old pictures of him off the internet. Um, and I tweeted that, and I can I just say, I just can't thank the people who responded to that enough. The reaction was absolutely overwhelming, and uh, the level of respect and um, love people had for his work and the, the knowledge they had of that work was uh it was just so gratifying and my entire family uh unfortunately my father keith no longer here either but my mum joe my sisters linda and sharon we are just so um overwhelmed at people's messages of support uh paul kelly himself weighed in with a lovely tribute to steve on facebook um which i i reposted and instagram and um it, it was it was absolutely so overwhelming. And, um, you know, look, the passage of time makes those things a bit easier. But, um, you know, we, we lost, I lost my big brother and my hero at 36 years of age, which is way too young. And, but I continue to take solace in the fact that he left a fantastic legacy and a body of work. And we can see him on video and we can listen to his music and, not a day goes by, I don't sort of drive somewhere and some radio station or whatever is building out a Paul Kelly track and I can hear my brother's very distinctive lead guitar on that. And um, We're grateful for that and we realise we're lucky to have that. Um, so I don't want to appear sort of too mournful about that anniversary, but this was a special one. And again, it's just it's such a big thank you to everyone out there who weighed in and just said thinking of you or, you know, I, I loved your brother's work or it just means so much. And, um, you know, it, it really makes me feel that, you know, people essentially are mostly pretty decent and pretty caring. And so what could have been a, a sad, tragic, horrible day was actually a lovely uh, life-affirming day for my whole family. So on behalf of all the Connollys, uh, thanks, everyone. It really meant a lot. Much love to your family. Much love. Thank you. Okay, my first life hack is a rather morbid observation because we are now, we're pretty close to what would have been the Tokyo Olympics, aren't we? Uh, yeah, well, was it June or July? Oh, yeah. yeah, we're heading towards it. And even though this was never Pierre de Coubertin's intention, in fact, he made it very clear that he did not want this to happen. The official medal tally is seems to be all-consuming, doesn't it? We every day we look at the medal tally, and and I've just realised in the last week or so that, quite disturbingly, the 
official world count of COVID-19 cases in terms of infections is starting to very much resemble the medal tally at an Olympic Games with the with Russia now rushing into second place. You've got the USA, Russia, um, then Brazil's now in fourth, and that's not it's not uncommon for them to feature during the Olympic Games. Obviously, China uh, remains one of the key players. Great Britain, Italy, France. The only uh, smile that this brings to one's face is that Australia, that normally compete, you know, out of their out of their socks and and really above their weight. What's the expression? Boxing above your weight. Uh, yeah, punching above their weight. Yeah, yep. at an Olympic Games, uh, and we often finish in the top ten. I'm glad to see that we're way down the list. But otherwise, it's quite, it's quite eerily similar to the sort of numbers that are compiled or the list that is compiled in order at an Olympic Games. It is, and there's been moments where I've witnessed some of the reactions of one Donald Trump to the whole thing, and wondered if that's actually how he is seeing it. I mean, it's a table you need to turn upside down, really, to to look at it in a favourable light, isn't it? And um, we have done extremely well and because we got onto it early and people have taken it seriously. And and, and a bit um, of good luck as yeah. well that it was... The oh, su- yeah. our, well, our, our isolation helps, obviously. And it was the southern summer in which it struck, which uh, we know through flu through uh, the passing of viruses such as the flu, etc. It's it's winter, as you pointed out earlier, is far more dangerous than summer. So we had a bit of a an opportunity through us through our isolation as an island, through a few factors. But nevertheless, we can't be complacent and just like we love winning gold at the Olympics, we need to love making sure that we have an absolute minimum, if any more deaths. We can, I reckon we can work pretty hard at having no more deaths. Yep, no, well well said, well said. All right, uh, my second one. Now, I'm, I apologise in advance because I mentioned this clown uh, the other week, but the um, state uh, member of parliament or the member for Q, Tim Smith, uh, not the comedian, unfortunately, although this guy is doing some sort of uh, unconscious comedy. Uh, he is a Liberal MP who's clearly desperately trying to make a name for himself and he has latched onto Twitter as a means of doing so and he has just been coming out and uh, tweeting a series of increasingly ludicrous um, comments about Dan Andrews and the state government and, uh, again, you know, like this ridiculous pressure to open things up earlier than they should be because it's all about the economy, blah, blah, blah. Um, And he seems to think that he's got some traction with it. So he tweeted something infantile the other day. You know, it was like grade four level insults. And um, when a tweet is basically poo-pooed by people it gets what they call ratioed and um for every like a tweet gets there's about five times as many comments and they're mostly negative so that happened and his response perhaps predictably really was oh well you know we need to get some cut through you know we we need to make our presence felt 
So uh, he's up the ante and he was at it again yesterday and I saw Tim Smith trending on Twitter and I thought, oh, here we go. No three guesses for what this is going to be. And he delivered again. And, um, you know, like if any Liberal Party strategists are listening to this, surely you realise that there's no future in that sort of stuff, that people in Victoria, uh, you know, and it sounds a bit arrogant, but I think we are above that sort of dog whistling crap. And uh, it's reflected in the way we've rejected shock jocks. Um, we've rejected extremism. And I think the general support across party lines for the way Andrews has handled this has been pretty um, overwhelming. And all you're doing, Tim Smith, is making a dick of yourself. So um, I'm trying not to give it too much attention. Yes, ironically, I'm mentioning it again, but I'm certainly not going to tweet about him anymore because it's it's so blatantly obvious. It cheapens the public debate. And I think people in Victoria, if there is a debate about the politics of COVID-19, it needs to be conducted more graciously and certainly in more adult fashion than Tim Smith has done thus far. All right, your next one. Okay, we know that there are going to be casualties from the business or the fallout to business from COVID-19 is going to see casualties. There are some businesses that have closed that simply will not reopen and I personally am starting to see some of those in and around where I live and one of them was a favourite of mine and I'm really saddened that, now you're going to, no sniggering here because this business has quite a funny name, but I was a regular customer on Chapel Street. Now, there's not too many places that just sell hot dogs anymore and I love hot dogs, I love a good hot dog and this was a really well-made hot dog sort of American in style, very simple place, just walk in, a counter, and it was called Massive Wieners. Now, absolute ripper hot dogs. The guy that owned it was great. He had a real sort of vision. But it relied, even though the old nightlife, you know, the hot dog van outside the nightclub venue isn't quite what it used to be ever since they invented drugs. But it, it, nevertheless, it relied a lot on the nightlife of Chapel Street. That doesn't exist at the moment. And uh, there's a four-lease sign and the place has been gutted. So uh, anybody that's been there will know why I'm sad that we no longer have massive wieners. Well, you, you, I just had a massive flashback when you mentioned that because when I first started going out with my mates when we were 18 and we got licences to drive and all that sort of stuff, and we're talking 1983, a big night for us would be going to see a band or going to uh, Chasers on Chapel Street or the Chevron not far away or places like that. And we would finish off the night with a visit to a place that wasn't in Chapel Street. It was in Turak Road. Oh, it yeah. was right near the corner. I know exactly what it was. The Electro Doghouse. Do you remember the Electro Doghouse? I loved Electro Dogs. All the, all the hot dogs <laughs> were named after, like German mustard was a schnauzer or whatever. If, if you had French mustard, it was a poodle. Well, I can't even remember what we used to have, but I reckon, I bet by today's standards, it looked absolutely Spartan and basic. But we thought that that was just a cutting edge cuisine for us. And we'd get quite excited about it when we would inevitably walk from those venues without the desired accomplices <laughs> that we were pursuing and soothe our, soothe our bruised egos with an electro doghouse 
the hot dog. So, um, yeah, no, that's uh, – but look, seriously, yeah, it's a really tough time for any business and particularly small businesses operating on fine margins. So, you know, our thoughts are with all those people and everyone doing it tough and it's been a tough time for all of us. My fur Um All right, uh, last one for me. And, look, I've only just come up with this. So, look, I'll keep it brief. And it's not, it's not a huge brick bat, but I was just having a look on the AFL website before and they appear to have a new interview series. So we know that there was a – we've talked about it a bit, the AFL media strategy of going more lifestyle, in inverted commas, and I'm, I'm a bit cynical about that, um, certainly if it's at the expense of covering the actual footy. Um, but it appears like they've started a new interview series with Hamish McLaughlin and um, that he did uh, Campbell Brown last week and I think he, he was talking about his mother and her illness and there's one this week with Tom Boyd talking about mental health. So in one way I sort of sense, yeah, it's a, it's a, a valuable initiative or whatever, but I really don't like the title they've come up with for it, which appears to be, quote, last time I cried, unquote. And why don't I like that? Well, only because, uh, yeah, okay, we, we know it's okay for men to cry, but if you are saying it's okay for men to cry, shouldn't you be making that seem an unremarkable emotion for a male to display? And, um, well, I'll put my hand up. I'm a big crier, finding. I cry at everything. I cry at happy stuff in, on TV, sad stuff. I cry if I see someone else crying with emotion. Uh, I literally cried about uh, something to do with our cat on Saturday. I'm a big crier. I'm an emotional person. And I'm not embarrassed about it. I don't think there's anything remarkable about it. And I think the, if you're making men crying even big tough professional sportsmen seem like something out of the ordinary you actually risk further stigmatizing it and doing the complete contrary of what you're attempting to do so call it something else but not last time i cried uh, you know men cry it's healthy it's actually healthy it's unhealthy not to cry and repress all that emotion so don't make it seem like it's a, a major event in a man's life that he cried I don't, you agree I don't, with that? Absolutely. Look, first of all, I agree with that. And I don't like the title either. It, it's as though, well, I don't like the inference. You know, here's a series where Hamish is uh, seeking out people who've, you know, at their most, had a vulnerable moment, etc., and, and putting it in the shop window. Look, those sort of important emotional moments in a person's life, if footballers or others, but if you're doing a series of footballers, uh, are meaningful when they are part of a greater story, I believe. But just to sort of cherry-pick highly emotional periods in people's lives, bang, 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 and present them in a series, I think... Uh, I, I don't like it. I, I think it's it's gawkish and overkill and takes away from the meaningful expression of emotion as part of a greater story. Yeah, it's a bit voyeuristic. Yeah. Uh, it, it, is, it, it has become a bit of a trend in media, probably started in newspapers, you know, over the last 
20 odd years, you know, where someone you're doing a profile on a footballer and there's some personal issue which emerges, which they're candid about. And, um, you know, it, it's, it, it often is engrossing and, and gripping, but it sort of becomes a bit of a cliche, unfortunately, after a while, when you get the latest in a line of footballers opening up about some horrible tragedy or whatever. And yeah, I mean, we, we used to have a bit of a joke uh, where I worked about, you know, certain people becoming the grief roundsmen, you know, like, um, it's, yeah, I, I don't like it. And, and yeah, with emotion, like, if we're truly embracing the showing of emotion, we don't need it to be seen as something out of the ordinary. So, yeah, it sort of defeats the whole purpose of the interview series, which I, I'm quite happy to say, yeah, look, it's probably honourable what they're trying to do, but that title really undermines it, in my view. All right, your last one to finish off. Just on that, the freak, you know, the freak sideshow freak circus was rightly closed down a long time ago because it uh, made of unfortunate lives even greater tragedy, only to be replaced by TV programs of medical mysteries and talk show hosts having on unfortunate people with deformities. It was just freak shows. They're just freak shows rebranded. Doesn't matter how empathetic in inverted commas the host or the interviewer is, it's still a freak show and a, you know it, it is voyeuristic. Okay, let's move on, and I want to talk about you because I was watching. Well, t- what, what have I done? Well, I was watching TV last night, and on came Media Watch, and there it was. I mean, I was. My attention was grabbed by the subject matter because they were talking about Dean Laidley and how the media handled it and very much uh, talking about what you uh, probably, of anybody in the media, uh, carried this talk first and foremost was how inappropriate it was for certain media outlets, both print and television, to run images of Dean Laidley that were illegally, if not illegally, then immorally taken by an individual whilst he was being interviewed by police. And of course, that has since been handled by police and charges have been laid. The police, head of police, have said it was a disgraceful act and beyond being apologetic, you know, were ashamed by what had been done. But that didn't stop certain media outlets from running those images. And that cause was taken up by Media Watch. And they then had a little grab of Caroline Wilson on footy classifieds saying that it was totally inappropriate and a shameful episode of uh, journalism. And then an image appeared on my screen, a photograph of Rowan Connolly, footyology manager. and Yeah, footyology managing director. Yeah, that was, that was funny. And I was very disappointed because, of course, we've discussed you being on Media Watch previously, and I loved the voice they gave you. It was sort of um, a little bit um, not, it wasn't It wasn't frantic or it wasn't hysterical, but it was concerned heading towards angry, you know. Unfortunately, this time, you were portrayed as a far calmer, more erudite individual and nothing to lampoon. But I, 
I just, I love, I was just waiting. Come on, come on, do the voice, do the voice. You know, because you know, I wanted you to have a completely outrageous voice. Hi there, I'm well, so angry at what's being done. That actually, that would have been quite inappropriate, wouldn't it? Sorry. Yeah, would have. <laughs> but funny. You've um, yeah, no, you've hit the nail on the head there because journo's um, there, there's two things about Media Watch they say. The, the one you never want to be on it, and that's the second time now I've appeared on Media Watch in a favourable light and the other thing about it is the voiceover and it's like it's you know how um, I always quote this like Tom Sawyer goes to his own funeral because everyone thinks he's dead and uh, the media equivalent of that is what would my voice approximation sound like on Media Watch now I, I've had two now and they've been just as you say and I actually funnily enough I watch it live nearly every week but I didn't last Monday because I was watching something with Abby on Netflix and I turned on my phone again afterwards and I had all these texts from friends and uh, family members and they were all saying exactly the same thing. And my whole life I thought, oh, geez, if I get on Media Watch, it'll be like, screw, the <laughs> bloody idiots of, you know, like Alf from Home and Away or something. And you're right. The, the first time I was on a few months back, I sounded sort of, you know, concerned slash slightly angry. And this time I sounded bordering on, academic you know it was like i was a university professor correct, or correct. something so i did send out a tweet thanking media watch for making me sound far more erudite and intellectual than i actually am so thanks guys appreciate it and appreciate your kind words too funny yeah, no, look, we're not making light of it. it it was a it was a serious uh, and is a serious subject and i was asked by the guardian to write a comment piece on it and i was grateful to them for the chance to do it and um I did it, and uh, yeah, and and look, just we've talked about it before, but the thing that really took me back about that whole Lavely story reporting wasn't just that these people were transgressing on moral grounds, they were transgressing on bloody legal grounds, republishing images that were obtained illegally, and it's just what responsible media organisation would willingly transgress that? It's just symptomatic again of where the media has gone in this country, and again, I'll allude to that a bit later. Uh, the, the senior uh, editor of the Herald Sun was totally unapologetic. And I've, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and I've, yeah. And they've got comment from him before. He's never, I guess, look, you know what? You've got to stand by your decisions. So in one way, there's no use publishing something and then apologising for it. So I can understand that. But if he dropped a, if he dropped an anvil, on your grandmother, he wouldn't apologise, that bloke. Well, unfortunately, you know, that that is the way. And, and you know, the scariest part, Fine, is the Herald Sun is the lower end of the News Corp spectrum. I mean, the Daily Telegraph in Sydney is worse. The Courier Mail in Queensland is worse. Um, anyway, it's interesting you mention that because I'm sort of going that uh, route, R-O-U-T-E, a little bit later on. Um, all right. That is enough life hackery. I think it's time we jumped in our time machine, finally, and went back to a year in the dim, distant past to talk about all the great music, movies, TV and footy memories from a year back in the mists of time. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. 
All right, let's go. Well, uh, I chose last week, so that means you choose this week, Finey, and that always leaves me with an overwhelming sense of anxiety because you're going to go for some left-field thing. And you did try and throw up a year about five seconds uh, ago, which I knocked on the head. But what are, what year are we doing? In the end, I found a great year. <laughs> I was going to – I'd put up year 2017. That was a bit silly, wasn't it? Well, I don't know. If you're 10 years old or whatever, 2017 probably seems like a long time ago, but not for us. No, we're not doing that. Yeah, okay, so what, what have you gone with? It's a ripper. 1975. Oh, well, yeah. No, well, it's funny. Some major events you can think of from 1975. The first thing I think of is uh, the sacking of Gough Whitlam as Prime Minister. That was a pretty massive event. Start of colour TV. Um, yeah, some some... Big stuff happened in, in 75. All right. Well, did, did your uh, family get a colour TV in 75? No, we didn't get one until uh, late 1977. So uh, almost three years I had to wait to, till we got colour. And I used to sit there and sort of half close my eyes and imagine that I was seeing things in colour that I knew other people were. But no, we had to wait some time before. And we were uh, one of those families that uh, rented our TV from Radio Rentals for any eight seven eight double eight double eight. Yeah, we got one. Late, um, we got one late in the year, and the very first thing, like when they turned it on, I was yep. so excited. Was Test match cricket, Australia West Indies? Oh uh, yeah. Well, isn't it funny? You remember the first thing. The first thing I watched on our new colour TV was, funnily enough, the uh, Australian Open golf from Sydney. Uh, and it's not something I would have watched if it wasn't in colour, trust me. All right, uh, I'm going to let you open the batting this week with this, saying it was your choice of year. So music, uh, or just before you go, some of the big albums of 1975, we had, there were some rippers. Uh, Physical Graffiti by Led Zeppelin. Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. Wish You Were Here, Pink Floyd, massive album. Born to Run, Bruce Springsteen. Venus and Mars by Wings. And uh, locally, of course, we had Ego is Not a Dirty Word by Skyhooks. But what are you going with? Fleetwood Mac by Fleetwood Mac was a huge album. Oh, yes. Yeah. I didn't mention that. Yeah. Well, I am going to go locally with the definitive, early, brilliant, just earth-shattering TNT by ACDC. Oh, yes. Okay. This... I think was the great awakening, wasn't it? You know, this band have some of the tracks on it are just iconic. Obviously, TNT. Uh, it's a long way to the top. Oh, the famous film clip in the down, truck, uh, down back of a truck down Swanson, Swanson Street. Swanson Street. It's with the bagpiper. How good is yeah. that? How good was that? Well, it's a great slice of how Melbourne used to look. Yeah, yeah. Sli- you know, just quickly, there's a. There's a great video clip Skyhooks did for This Is My City on the roof of um, one of those old buildings, which is like it's a long way to the top. Just gives you a fantastic actual view of what Melbourne looked like in the mid-70s. Yeah, it's, it's be- I love stuff like that. A snapshot of the past as it slid past the Y&Js, Young and Jacksons, a ripper. Uh, there was also high voltage on it. I mean, this is a power-packed album with Bon Scott at his best. The Jack was a great track, as was Livewire. And I, I think that for Australian 
early fans of ACDC, tell me where you sit on this. This was ACDC, I believe, you know, look, they had many great moments thereafter. But it will always be to a lot of people, Bon Scott's band, of course, his passing, had Brian Johnson come in and do, and it was a great, great selection, Brian Johnson. Don't get me wrong. But I think this is iconic encapsulated the best of ACDC is this album for me. Yeah, no, absolutely no question for me. I mean, look, I really like Back in Black. I think that's a really good album. I like bits and pieces of other stuff they did. But, yeah, I agree. Bon Scott really helped make that band. And, in fact, I did my top 20 albums um, countdown on on Twitter a few weeks back and Highway to Hell. Uh, I had as my fourth favourite album of all time. I mean, my two favourite Akadaka albums are Highway to Hell and Power Age, which were 79 and 78. But, um, yeah, the early stuff. And they followed up uh, TNT, Finey, with um, Dirty Deeds, Done Dirt yeah, Cheap. The yeah, next that's right. Has, has that and Jailbreak. And, yeah, I mean, kids our age, you know, we're, we're, we were walking around primary school yards, you know, singing about busting out of jail and people, well, the jack is about venereal disease. Um, you know, so pretty interesting subject matter for 10-year-old kids. But, uh, yeah, great band, great band. And good choice, Fonny. I'm suitably impressed. And, of course, that you came up with an album. <clears throat> um, all right, I've, I've gone for something not left, well, not left field if you live in the Northern Hemisphere, but I have spoken before on this show about Rush, um, a massive uh, prog rock band well that prog progressive rock was only one of their phases this is a band that was around for 40 years they were huge in the northern hemisphere but rarely played on radio here just one of those quirks I guess and sadly Neil Peart I think the greatest drama music scene passed away a few months back and um, very very sad news but left an amazing legacy and uh, I've gone with their album out of 1975, Fly By Night. Now, the significance of this is it was their second album. They'd done a self-titled album the year before. This was their second effort, but the first to feature the late Neil Peart on drums. And he um, absolutely revolutionised that band, not only with his drumming, but he became the lyricist for the band. And a lot of the stuff that Rush has written about, you know, quite... Um, out there, you know, futuristic and sci-fi sort of themes and about mythology and then later on more sort of intellectual themes. He was one of the most widely read musos in history, Neil Peart, a voracious reader of stuff. And, um, yeah, really out there. And and their song compositions became a lot longer and more complex. And this is one of the reasons I love the band so much. They're just really interesting sounds. And... Uh, Fly By Night's a ripper. The title track is pretty mainstream sounding and it did really well. One of my favourite Rush songs, Anthem, is a real powerful rocker for 1975. Um, And it's got another of my favourite tracks, which is the first of these longer songs, Bytor and the Snow Dog, which is about an evil god and this sort of fight against a, uh, a snow dog who is fighting for good. And um, it goes for about eight and a half minutes. But again, that really rocks. So um, if you want an introduction to Rush, they've sound- sounded a lot of different 
genres they have pursued. This is the start of them transitioning from pretty basic Led Zeppelin sounding rock to a more progressive style and certainly more uh, sophisticated in their songwriting. But I, I really love this album um, and I think it stands up pretty well. Fly By Night by Rush, Canadian, uh, legendary Canadian power trio Rush, Fly By Night, 1975. All right, movies, finding Now, what a bumper year for movies this was. And there were so many to choose from. I actually wrote some of my all-time favourite movies come out in 75. Now, one of them, I'm proud to say, is an Australian movie. Have you seen Sunday Too Far Away? Yeah. Was that with Jack Thompson? I love it. Was that with Jack yep, Thompson? About the, yep, about the Shearer strike in the mid-50s. Yeah, very Fantastic good. movie. I love it. So that came out in 75. Another uh, a footy movie finally came out in 75, Salute to the Great McCarthy. Not, not so um, good. Uh, no, but the footy scenes are interesting. They were shot at the Lake Oval and Junction Oval the season before, and, and they're in colour. Um, another big Australian film, Picnic at Hanging Rock by Peter Weir. Big year for Australian film. Um, another favourite of mine, Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, we had an- another favourite of mine, Shampoo. Um, I've got uh, still another one that I'll talk about in a minute, but you first. What did you go with? The Great Jaws. This is... Oh, I thought that was the Adams Family thing. No, it wasn't, mate. This changed the way – this really changed cinema, this movie. It broke all box office records, but it had such a, you know, a, a long-term effect on the people that saw it that movie makers raised their game after this a little bit, understanding the power of cinema. Beaches were empty for, for decades. It's taken a long time for people to – understand that sharks have their place in the ecosystem and we're visiting their environment, not vice versa. And there was uh, species, including the great white shark, brought to the brink of extinction on the back of the fear generated by this movie. It was quite extraordinary. But I've got a few interesting facts about Jaws. Did you want to hear some odd little oddities about the movie? Far away. Okay, so Steven Spielberg, the director, had only really had one feature film previously, and that was the movie Duel, in which two trucks... Love Duel. And he was worried and initially didn't want to direct Jaws because he thought that he would just be known as the, you know, truck and shark man. Uh, Horror (laughs) horror movies or sort of, you know, suspense horror thrillers with different um, main players, be it a truck or a shark. This is really interesting. None of the actors, of course, it stars Roy Scheider yep. and Richard Dreyfus and Robert Shaw. They're basically the main actors in it, playing Brody, Matt Hooper, the biologist, and Quint, the gnarly sea captain. None of them were first, second, or even third choices for Spielberg. But everybody he asked, knocked it back, including the likes of Charlton Heston for Quint's role, uh, Jeff Bridges for the role played by Richard Dreyfus. A number of major actors turned their noses up at the possibility of being in what they thought would sounded like just a B-grade horror movie. 
Gee, I didn't know that. The main actor besides those three, of course, is the shark, and it was a mechanical three-part multi-purpose construction that they called Bruce, named after the uh, one of the financiers for the movie. And its nickname given to it by Spielberg was the Great White Turd because it kept falling apart and breaking and it was not easy to work with. You know, I think people know that there were quite a few scenes shot in Australia by the Taylors, you know, the famous shark couple, Valerie and Roger Taylor. Yeah. What people don't know is that those scenes shot in a shark cage, to make the shark look even bigger, it was actually a miniaturised cage and the body double for Richard Dreyfus was a four foot nine ex jockey. <laughs> and that's true. That that was to make the shark that swam past look even bigger. How funny is that? And the last <laughs> good one? Last little yeah, bit of good. it's funny, isn't it? The last bit of trivia it was is Peter Bacos. Remember Peter Bacos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what he used to call himself? What? A Collingwood five footer. <laughs> yeah. He reckoned he was four foot eleven and a half. Um, and the final one was one of the scariest scenes is, I think near the pier, whatever, when the um, decapitated head of a fisherman bobs up in the water. Remember that? Yeah. Now that was supposed to be one of the scariest scenes, but when they looked at all the outtakes and were about to do the final edit, Steven Spielberg just was very unhappy with the angle at which it was shot and wanted to reshoot it. So it was actually reshot in the backyard swimming pool of one of the um, producers of the movie, actually one of the editors of the movie, and her swimming pool was used for the close-up shot. But he was concerned that the pool was too clean because of the chlorine, so they went and bought gallons and gallons of milk from a local store and poured milk into her swimming pool until it was murky enough to look more like the ocean <laughs> and less like a swimming pool. <laughs> and they're all true. That's, no, that's great stuff. You, you've uh, excelled yourself on the research front with that. Well done. Cool. Um, all right, my film. Uh, I love this film. And uh, I, I think my favourite era of, of movie making Hollywood-wise is that mid, early to mid-70s. There was just a succession of uh, thrillers, but not sort of horror, you know, slash slash movies. They were like political thrillers. And, um, you know, All the President's Men, close to my favourite movie ever. Uh, you know, Day of the Jackal, uh, The French Connection, that's a crime movie. But yeah, they did it. It was a genre they did particularly well. And this one, I reckon, stands up really well. And it is Three Days of the Condor. Have you seen that? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I great, love that film. Great movie. Yeah, so uh, starring Robert Redford as the main character, Joe Turner, uh, who is a, well, he works for the CIA, but not as like a hitman or whatever. He is a, a code analyst. So he works in a, a secret location, which is given a, a fictitious title of like the National Museum of Literary something or other. And his job is to read books and search for hidden code and stuff that might be used against the US for the CIA. Um, and what happens is, talk about a movie starting with a bang, you see him sort of going about his normal day's work 
and he uh, pops out the back door to go and pick up lunch from the local deli for everyone. And it's a small office. There's only, I think, seven of them. And he comes back 10 minutes later with a lunch and lo and behold, he finds his entire workforce shot dead. And uh, what, what has happened in the meantime is a uh, hitman played magnificently by Max von Sydow, who sadly died recently, um, has come in and one by one assassinated all these people he works with. So, of course, uh, Turner flips out and he rings, phones in headquarters and he doesn't know any of the people he's talking to and he gets told to uh, meet uh, an Agent Wicks down some back lane and he's a bit suspicious, so he asks for a mate of his to go along and uh, that goes pear-shaped as well and he ends up um, shooting Wicks and escaping, and then he thinks the CIA are after him as well. So it just turns into this paranoid political thriller with Robert Redford knowing that someone is out to kill him, not knowing why. Um, and he takes a hostage, who is the co-star of this movie, Faye Dunaway, who plays a woman called Kathy Hale, takes her hostage, and eventually she comes to understand what he's about and they uh, they have a bit of nookie at some stage, but that's not the main thrust, perhaps uh, unfortunate analogy there, but um, not, the, not the main thrust of the movie. Um, the CIA agent he ends up dealing with over the phone is uh, Cliff Robertson playing the character of Higgins. And um, it's basically Redford trying to stay alive trying to work out what the hell is going on. And there's one incredible scene where he finds out what's going on and he traces it to the deputy director of the CIA, a guy called Leonard Atwood, manages to track down where he lives, breaks in on him and takes him hostage. Atwood reveals that he Redford had, in fact, stumbled over some code which... Um, uh, sort of blew the whistle on a covert CIA operation, a CIA inside the CIA. And um, just as he's about to deal with him, uh, Max von Sydow's assassin turns up and Redford thinks, well, I'm toast. But then Max von Sydow turns around and shoots the CIA man instead. So it's this sort of, you know, plot within a plot and... Um, but the, the greatest achievement of this film is the air of tension that is created throughout. Um, a paranoid, sort of tense, claustrophobic feel. Uh, this guy fearing for his life and every step. And the film finishes brilliantly on, on a similar note. It's not a happy, they all left happy ever after ending. And I, I just reckon it's magnificent. Uh, Redford is terrific as Joe Turner. Faye Dunaway is great as Kathy Hale. Uh, and Max von Sydow as the hired assassin, Joubert, is absolutely brilliant. It's it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, check it out. Oh, don't, hang, on, hang on, hang on. If you haven't seen it, you might have just ruined it for people. Oh, was that a bit of a spoiler, you I think? think? I think by the time you had Atwood getting shot, we, uh, maybe, yeah, we, we, right. we spoiler but, alerted know, you, it. Well, there's more. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a spoiler. Sorry. But there is more to it than that. It's a great film. Check it out if you haven't. Um, all right, TV, what do you got? Okay, this show, I don't know how people look back at this show that are old enough to remember it. Some uh, do so with a bit of 
a bit of scorn actually, but I think I I feel it was groundbreaking. Well, it wasn't groundbreaking because there had been shows previously, but if, for me it was must viewing. It was late night, or at least for a young boy, it was late night entertainment. It was a variety show. We don't have them anymore. And I speak of the Don Lane show. This lanky yank arrived from the States, Morton Isaacson. He was a bit of a song and dance man, probably didn't quite cut the mustard over back in the US. It wasn't top shelf over there. But he came here and got a contract and was the number one thing on TV, really locally. Big contract. And he built this great relationship with Bert Newton, the king of the second banana, who'd already had great success with Graham Kennedy. Now, there was natural resistance to this American turning up on our shores because people loved Graham Kennedy and Graham Kennedy had sort of run foul of authorities and his rambunctious ways had finally seen him put off TV. But his replacement in the end won the hearts of Australians. Uh, There was great rapport between the two that used to play it on the big wheel and a lot of fun was had there. What might seem now as clunky and obvious and even stereotyping certain, I don't think there was too much stereotyping, maybe there was, I don't know, was good fun back in the day. He had his favourites, there were some clashes with guests, famously taking on James Randi, the the debunker of all things paranormal, uh, because he dared to insult Doris Stokes, the medium from England, who Don Lane described as a very nice woman. He also stoutly defended Uri Geller, who turned out very shortly there afterwards to be a complete fraud and James Randi still I think to this very day the James Randi Institute offers a million dollars for anybody that can provide conclusive evidence of paranormal behavior and I don't think they've ever written a check but Don Lane didn't like him he was a you know she's a very nice lady now I was very fortunate because not only did I like the Don Lane show I got to meet Don Lane um uh, one of the sponsors on the program for prizes and other things was suit maker Stafford Ellenson who made his suits and the owner of that business actually was our next door neighbour and Sunday morning he had a tennis court and I was very lucky enough to grow in a house with a tennis court. There was tennis every Saturday and Saturday afternoons and Sunday morning with my dad and uh, his friends and next door neighbour and their friends. Don Lane was a keen tennis player and he was part of the rotation. So many a Sunday morning, I'd look out the back at my tennis court and see Johnny Fine partnering up with Donny Lane. It's quite oh, nice. quite entertaining. Nice. Oh, I didn't know that. No, and that's. Uh... I remember once oh. in, in between matches, you know, sometimes you had to sit out because there were too many players. And he came inside and got a drink. And obviously I moseyed down to the kitchen because I wanted to have a word with him or whatever. And, he's, and he said, hey, hey, little guy, do you play tennis? I said, yes. He goes, you should be like Harold Solomon. He's a, he's a backcourt guy, but he's only small, because I was really little when I was a kid. He's only small. You should mould yourself on Harold Solomon. That's the only thing he ever, <laughs> that's the only thing he ever said to me. Uh, nice. No, no, I liked it. All right. Uh, so other TV shows in 1975, we had uh, Welcome Back, Cotter, Wonder Woman, Starsky and Hutch, Barney Miller, uh, that English sitcom The Good Life, started in 75, but I've gone for a very big ticket item, 
Bonnie and some, and uh, in fact, many people have regularly voted this the greatest sitcom of all time. And I'm talking about Faulty Towers. Um, magnificent, uh, ahead of its time in terms of the way it pursued gags and uh, set, set up gags and scenes. Um, partly the reason it's so well-remembered and loved is uh, it didn't overstay its welcome. There were only two seasons of it. The first in 1975, which was just six episodes. And they did a second season, but that actually, I didn't know this till last night, that came four years later in 1979. Co-written by John Cleese, of course, of Monty Python fame, and Connie Booth, who plays the um, sort of vo one voice of reason in the madness that is the Faulty Towers Hotel in uh, coastal Torquay in, in the UK. Um, she plays Polly, the uh, maid, who, uh, yeah, the, about the one voice of sanity in this show. Uh, Basil Faulty is the main character, played memorably by Cleese. Sybil Faulty, his wife, played by Prunella Scales, and who basically in every episode gets the upper hand on Basil and is able to um, constantly put him in his place with a withering put-down of some sort. Uh, the poor, hapless um, Spanish waiter Manuel, played brilliantly by Andrew Sachs, and uh, a, a passing parade of funny characters, my favourite of which was uh, Major, uh, a, um, an old war veteran played by Ballard Berkeley, who took up residence in the bar most days and actually lived at the hotel and is, uh, I figures, in most episodes, I think. Um, but really simple premise, a, a um, dysfunctional hotel which uh, in, in which the guests seem to put Basil out rather than accommodate them. He seems put out by their presence. And he's a bit of a, he's a bit shallow and a bit, uh, bit of a, a would-be social climber and uh, things always conspire against him, whether through coincidence or accident or you name it. But um, some some of comedy's most memorable moments, I guess the, the one that everyone talks about with Foldy Towers is the episode called The Germans, where a group of German tourists come to stay. Basil is concussed when a um, souvenir moose head falls on him and he's uh, even battier than usual and he manages to offend all the Germans by constantly making stupid references to the Second World War. Uh, ends up with him doing the um, classic Hitler walk uh, with his head all bandaged because he's concussed, et cetera, et cetera. There, I was thinking about my favourite moments. Um, another memorable episode uh, called Basil the Rat, where Manuel's pet rat escapes and, and causes havoc throughout the hotel. But every episode, all 12 of them are very fondly remembered and a very simple premise, but we all loved it. I think I've never met anyone that didn't, Really enjoy Foldy Towers. It was a great show. Uh, funnily enough, the initial reviews were pretty unflattering, but uh, I think people expected Cleese to be doing something reprising Monty Python rather than a more conventional sitcom character. He played Basil Foldy absolutely brilliantly, and uh, that is a comedy legacy which endures to this day, 45 years later. Utterly, All right. Look, look, I've got to add to this. Utterly brilliant. I mean, you you had the pick. We took things in turn, and fair enough, you took Faulty Towers. I, I had some favourite moments as well. Mrs. Richards, the um, stingy 
guest who, oh, yes. <laughs> who would not turn on her hearing aid and yes. complained about everything and called him up to her room and said, he said, what's the problem? He said, the view. I don't like the view. <laughs> and he said, pardon? The view. It's unacceptable. He said, well, it is Torquay. What were you expecting? The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, perhaps? Herds of wildebeest? <laughs> I, mean, just... I, watched that, I watched that scene again last night. It was brilliant. Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. Now, you said you liked uh, the, ma- like... the major. I've just got to give you one yeah. quote from the major that is so politically incorrect, but it was so funny. He goes, oh, I took a girlfriend once to the Oval to see Surrey. And Basil's only half listening. He's pouring a drink. Oh, yes, yes, yes. He goes, there's, there's nasty girl. Uh, he said, I, I took her to see the Indians playing Surrey at the Oval. Nasty girl. She called the Indians nignogs. And Basil looks around at him and, and Major goes, oh, no, no, I told her. I said, no, 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 that's not right. And Basil goes, yeah, quite right too, quite right. Good on you. He goes, I set her straight. I told her the West Indians are the Nignogs. Indians are the Wogs. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, well, you, you could get away with that in the mid-season. It, it, uh, it was just typical of the – there was always – I found the humour in it. You thought you knew what was coming. But it was smarter than there was always a twist in it. It was great. It was just great stuff. Um, okay, All right. we're uh, on the footy, aren't we? Let's finish off your footy memory. Well, I've got to say, and I think most people would say, 1975. I'm glad that I was around to see the last of the teams break the ice. Of course, too young really for 66. But I started following football, and North Melbourne were the last. They were the last link in the chain, the only team not to win a flag. I heard tell of a grand final. They lost to your mob in 1950 and then saw them play Richmond, lose in 74. And I think in 1975, there were great expectations for a team that had capitalised on the short-lived 10-year rule that saw them sign Barry Davis from Essendon. They got John Rantell a superstar defender from Fitzroy, and, of course, Doug Wade, the big key forward. Uh, They had some good interstate recruiting, uh, the likes of, well, better than good, Barry Cable and Malcolm Blight and Graham Melrose as well, Richard McAlchick. Uh, Melrose and McAlchick would not go on to play in the grand final. Uh, The expectations were there'd be a powerhouse in 75, but, you know, interestingly, that's not the season they had, Rowan. They lost their first four games. They were second bottom just by percentage, obviously. They then lost a couple more in the next few weeks. They were, they were only three wins after nine rounds and sitting 10th on the, table, on the ladder. That, it, it warmed up. Of course, they did win games. You know, the last game of the season, Rowan, they were at home at Arden Street to South Melbourne. Now, South Melbourne were adrift on the bottom of the ladder not only were they wooden spooners, they'd only won two games, five less than any other team, South Melbourne. North had to win that game to ensure in, in make sure they got the double chance. At three-quarter time, they only led by two points against lowly South Melbourne. So even heading into the finals, there was nothing assured about North Melbourne. They beat Carlton in the first final at the MCG. 
then lost to Hawthorne with the surprise superstar of Michael Cook in his first ever game, kicking four goals on David Dench. Big shock there. Finally, getting it right in the preliminary final, winning by three goals thereabouts against Richmond, they hit the grand final with some confidence and they made short work of the Hawks. Absolutely short work of them. It was a great win. The, you know, the stars, Brent Croswell. Now, did you know that Brent Croswell in 75 played for Carlton as well? Uh, I, no, I, I remembered he crossed around them, but I didn't know it was mid-season, no. Well, he played round one for Carlton and reappeared round seven for North. But true to his reputation, true to his reputation, he only ever found form in the finals and on the big stage. He had a great game. Um, you know, some of the other the stars were now they had another play from Interstate, but you can't count him as a star recruit. Rejected by Fitzroy, he travelled everywhere to get recognition. Cheeky sentiment John Burns, who has a great story of the seventy five grand final, because he went into that with a serious shoulder injury. And that was known by Hawthorne, but they strapped up his good shoulder and left his bad shoulder unstrapped. Hawthorne, Lee Matthews in particular, took great interest in that strapped shoulder, but that was the good one, and he got away and played a great game. Um, the only player that... The interesting thing was Malcolm Blight. Well, well, here's the thing. Doug Wade was not going to play in that game, and was it a late-night chess game with Barassi that convinced him to pl- play him? Yeah, and he said he'd play as long as he didn't fly for any marks. Yeah. And he kicked so four- basically he played as a crumbing forward. He kicked four goals, didn't he? Uh, three or four, yep. yeah. Um, Stephen Ick was the unlucky player. Young Ick uh, played in the preliminary final but didn't play in the grand final. And North won their first flag. Now, I just want to ask you one question. Everybody knows that Michael Cook played his second and last game and didn't touch the ball in that grand final. But Hawthorne yeah. also had a player playing in only his third. Now, I'll tell you this about North Melbourne. Yeah. Except for Malcolm Blight, every player had played over 50 games of VFL football. Very experienced team. Yeah. Who was the Hawthorne player playing in only his third game? Shane Murphy. Well done. You're a beauty. Uh, yeah, I don't know why I remember that. Because I, I saw him bob up in some highlights and he had very long hair. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah, Okay. Uh, no, good one. Uh, very memorable premiership. North first, of course, sparking scenes of delight for long-suffering Arden Street faithful. Um, well, I'm going with uh, a theme here, Finey. Of course, I mentioned before, colour TV being introduced to Australia in 1975. So the VFL uh, decided it was time for clubs to spruce up their act a bit, given that they were going to be on colour TV. And uh, we had a mass... Uh, changing of uniforms and I I went through them all one by one and remembered most of them, but there were a couple I hadn't remembered. Uh, Essendon, of course, started wearing red shorts and uh, they thickened the red sash on their jumper. Fitzroy, short-lived this one, fortunately, because it was pretty garish, wore gold shorts. And, in fact, if you have a look at the sad... um, career-ending injury to Neil Saxey, who became a quadriplegic in only his second game for Footscray. Uh, he gets fixed up by 
Kevin O'Keefe from Fitzroy, who is wearing the gold shorts. Um, Footscray themselves, they changed the hoops on their jumpers, got them the big red sash and the small white top and bottom, and went the red shorts as well. Uh, Hawthorne took the stripes off the backs of their jumpers and started wearing brown shorts. Melbourne went from navy blue on the jumper to a royal blue and blue shorts. North Melbourne were already starting to wear the blue shorts. They were trendsetters north. And uh, South Melbourne, of course, wore red shorts instead of the old black. And here's the one that no one remembers, Fighty. I, I reckon you do, but not many people do. Did you know, people, that Richmond, very, very brief though it was, started wearing gold shorts? Yes, it is true. There are very few pictures of this. And in fact, I did some research last night and there's very little reference to it. So I think the plan was for Richmond to wear gold shorts for away games and black shorts at home, or maybe the other way around. Um, but I've only ever seen, I reckon, one shot or a tiny bit of video footage of Richmond in the gold shorts. And it's a game against Hawthorne out at Waverley. Now, I looked that up and that was the third game of the season. And the story I read, and this, you know, it could be apocryphal, but it sounds right. Apparently, the Richmond players, that was the first time they wore them and they got smashed and they were so embarrassed about the gold shorts and how they felt it made them look that they trooped into the rooms afterwards and said, we are not wearing these shorts again. And they promptly changed back to black for home games and white for away games. So uh, there you go. If you haven't seen any shots of Richmond in their gold shorts, they did do it, but very, very briefly. All right, that is more than enough for vinyl and video. We've gone over time in this segment this week, but it leaves us perfectly prime funny to finish off the show with a good rant. On Footyology, the rant off. All right, Fonny, I've got a few pet uh, ranting topics and I'm revisiting one of them. Um, you'll work out what it is pretty quickly in the piece, but uh, I'm ready to go. Just count me in. One, two, let's have three. I'm pissed off with the media, Finey. Yeah, it's this line again. Has the industry in which I've spent two-thirds of my life really descended to the depths of a crappy vaudeville show full of the dregs of humanity? Well, these days I tend to think so. It was something I pondered during the week as some tiresome old fart from Sydney hung up his radio microphone after it seems a lifetime of pathetic agenda-driven bullying of minorities, hectoring, dummy spitting and general douchebaggery. Who am I talking about? Well, let's be honest, it could be half the media these days, but it's actually a reference to Alan Jones. If you live in Sydney beyond the western suburban belt, that's your cue to roll your eyes and go and make a cup of tea. And if you live anywhere else in Australia, like here in Melbourne, count your blessings you haven't had to witness the sad spectacle of grown politicians kissing the ass of some misogynistic egotist because they're worried about losing a handful of votes among brain-dead rednecks who wouldn't vote for them in a fit anyway, but who happen to be Jones's listeners. Credit where it's due, though, Finey. Jones left some legacy. What was it? Well, let's see. He played a key role in fostering the racial hatred which sparked the Cronulla riots in 2005. He laughed about Julia Gillard's recently deceased father dying of shame because his daughter hadn't bowed at the Temple of Jones. He suggested Gillard be put in a chaff bag and thrown out to sea. 
He spent 10 minutes in an alleged interview basically shouting at the woman who ran the Sydney Opera House because she didn't want to project ads for a tacky horse race on a major tourist attraction. And, of course, he memorably told New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern someone should shove a sock down her throat. Gee, anyone would think Jones had a problem with women or something. In fact, Finey, it's a lot simpler than that. His problem is simply this. He's an asshole. And take that as my contribution to the pantheon of suck jobs the usual suspects performed in Jones's honour. And yes, usual suspects means duplicitous politicians, News Corp employees and Sky News commentators. Jones has helped create the template of shock jockery which permeates so much of what passes for media commentary these days, on radio, TV and in print. It's the sort of say-something-controversial-for-attention crap which produces complete cretins like Kyle Sandilands, currently getting paid $7 million per year to be an even bigger asshole than Jones. Or on a bigger stage, a president of the United States who is just a freak reality show taking up residence in the White House. He lies, he talks gibberish, he throws the sort of tantrums you wouldn't accept in a two-year-old toddler. And the US media? Well, they just dutifully report it all much of it uncritically, because they know some pathetic Trump stunt will make an easier headline or soundbite than any meaningful analysis of his self-absorbed posturing. At least Australia isn't at that level yet. Our clowns mostly reside in the fourth estate. They're on a pay TV network dribbling supposedly edgy commentary in desperate bids for attention, or in some Murdoch propaganda rag posing as a newspaper, throwing out a few cheap insults, so Andrew Bolt will give them five seconds on his show on that same pay TV network. At least that's the only forum in which we'll now have to put up with Alan Bloody Jones. Or judging by Sky News' microscopic-sized ratings, fortunately, not put up with him. Almost valet Alan Jones after that assassination by Rowan, but most of it, I think, never a fan was I of Alan Jones and... May I say, not a fan of, and I've got to get it right now, I can't remember who it was because I always confuse the host of um, one of those current affair shows, whatever her name is, with Kerry Ann Kennelly. It was one of them. I can't remember which. Studio 10? No, no, no. no. It, it, it was when Alan Jones decided to turn his blowtorch on to Chopper Reed and said that he... Oh, no, it was Kerry ann Kennelly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She cut Chopper she off. Shut, he was she, about to... she shut Chopper down when Chopper brought up what everybody was thinking and finally was going to put Alan Jones on the spot because it's interesting that you can moralise when you have a criminal record that contains the offence that he has. Now, I'm, I, I, I'm, I don't want to lambasted him for that offence, just for the moral higher ground he's taken ever since. So, anyhow. We yeah, were... well, here's the, here's the comment on the show Kerry-Ann Kennelly is on now, Studio 10. She's not even the worst person on that show. And I'm not even going to mention that clown's name, but speaking of attention seekers, what a tool. All right, off you go. Well, Rowan, COVID-19 and the lockdown has certainly been difficult and tragic for many people and it's presented new lives for all of us and for myself one of the upsides has been that I have for the first time in my life connected with the garden that surrounds the house in which I live. Now having moved in the last year 
to a house that is surrounded by a forest, I can tell you that taking on the responsibility for taking care of that garden is full-time work. Call me Chauncey. I am now wedded to gardening. I have gone to Bunnings and I regularly purchase new items to keep the garden in check. In fact, my range of Ozito power tools includes everything except the Ozito 4-in-1 woman pleaser. I've got the entire range, from lawnmower to line trimmer to weed whopper, to blower to double blower, to hedge trimmer to mini chainsaw, all powered by the same batteries. No, I've really taken it on seriously. And do you know what I've learned about plant life and about regrowth and regeneration, Rowan? I've learnt this, that mankind must be incredibly egotistical and is totally misguided in their view of this world or this planet without us. The general image of life after mankind, when we ruin it all, damn us to hell, will be a planet devoid of any plant life, a giant vast wilderness of deserts in which we have, through climate change and water abuse and other terrible worldly sins, basically deforested and denuded this planet of all life, including our own. Let me tell you what arrogance, because I've learnt this in the garden, Rowan. There will be a time when we press the wrong button and there will be no humans on earth. And it won't be a long time after that, as people are prone to say. It'll be only a matter of weeks before the plants, the vines, the weeds, the undergrowth reclaim this planet. And all the edifices that we thought so grand and so permanent will be choked, covered and destroyed by encroaching plant life. I've learnt this in my garden, Rowan. You can fight it, you can cut it, you can weed whack it, you can poison it, you can even piss on it, but tomorrow it's going to grow back. Oh, no. Well done. That, that is, that is uh, arguably your most erudite, articulate rant ever. And uh, it was really, it was positive. Well done. Well done. I, I do hear constantly from people that have a green thumb, that gardening is incredibly therapeutic. Oh, it is. You know what it's like in where I am at the moment? It's like trying to hold back the tide with a plastic spade. It is impossible. I turn my back. I mow the lawn. I turn my back. I can hear it grow. <laughs> Yes, well, I've, I've never been blessed with a green thumb, so uh, I've got a thumb that dials the gardener and says, mate, can you come around? The weeds are taking over again. You know, look, I just and want to I say this. That. We've got ivy plants and everything, and we, we come under the jurisdiction of the Melbourne City Council. Now, I had turned my front nature strip into a metre-high collection of cut branches, bags of clippings, etc., once a month, they come by and take away all green product and mulch it in their truck. And I thought there was no chance because this was a commercial quantity of cutoffs. They came yesterday. Two blokes worked for 45 minutes to load all this stuff up or mulch it. But to their credit, they did it without complaint. And I got to say, we complain about the rates we pay and about our councils, but that was hard work well done. Well done, uh, 
gardening department of the Melbourne City Council. Spot on. All right. Uh, that just about takes us out for this week. Been a fun show, uh, interesting show, um, and but a show we could never bring to you, finally, without our wonderful sponsors. And uh, time to give them a quick plug right now. I love Andrew's hamburgers. They're at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And you know why I love them? Because they make great right. burgers. Look, they're good blokes, the people there. They're, they're nice people. Don't get me wrong. But I wouldn't go there if their burgers weren't brilliant. That's why I'm at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, Andrew's Burgers. And Nick Spartels goes there. You know why? Because he knows good taste. And he exhibits that good taste in his company, West Point Properties, for your rebuilds and refurbs. They're great sponsors. And we ask you to support them when you can. Yes, here, here. Thanks to our sponsors and thanks to you, our audience. You've stuck with us for a long time now. We appreciate you sticking with us and hopefully we're giving you something you enjoy in these difficult times. But times that are creeping ever closer to getting back to something like normal. Thanks for your company again. We'll see you next week.